And if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 15. We are continuing our uh, kind of brief overview of the book of Acts, but mainly trying to get snapshots, pictures of what was that first church like? How did they deal with life? How did they deal with one another? How were they organized? What were things happening? We're going to be looking specifically this morning at the issue of leadership and in particular the place of elders in that role. Because the church, uh, we're talking about you're, you're here at church. Um, when people ask you what you do on Sunday mornings, I hope you say, I go to church. <laughs> I go to worship God. I want to know Jesus better. Because the Christian church, if you think about it, it really, it's a blessing. It is a rich blessing for you and I to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ. But can I tell you right up front something you already know? The, the Christian church, it truly is a blessing, isn't it? But it can be a messy thing as well. Amen? Well, don't say amen, but amen. <laughs> it can be a messy thing as well. The challenge is, uh, how do you keep people happy? How do you remind them of the Lord? It's not as easy as it might appear. There, there are always issues with different ministries and, and leadership, w- whether it's music or children's ministry or outreach or budget. It seems everybody has an opinion. <laughs> There, then there are those personality issues, amen again, um, personality differences. It's like marriage, isn't it? Not my marriage, but it's like marriage. <laughs> healthy marriages, healthy marriages have healthy disagreements, which often lead to stronger love. Then there's doctrine, amen, here we go. Then there's doctrine. In many circles today, the chant seems to be, Doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. And then there are some denominations that that seem more concerned about promoting their particular doctrine at the expense of caring for others. You know, it's sad because in, in the purest sense, doctrine is a positive foundation that affects how we live. We all Hear me now, we all have some doctrine or creed that we live by. It it might not be as clear as others, but you and I all have one creed. You and I live out life based on what we believe. (laughs) You might not have a formal statement of what you believe, but friends, it's it's a fact. You do what you do because of what you believe. That's doctrine. (laughs) That's what it is. And in our passage this morning, I think we're going to see a clash of not only personalities, but of doctrine that affected the early church. Let's look at this passage to give us a backdrop, and then I want to tell you where I hope to go with this. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. Look at an incident in the life of the first century church. Hear now God's word. But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles 
and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together together to consider this matter. And there had been much debate. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God knows who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. The church. The church of Christ. One thing I want us to be thinking throughout this this sermon aspect here of this passage is simply this. In the Christian church... Right doctrine will always lead to right living to which elders are held accountable. Let me say that again. Right doctrine will always lead to right living to which elders are held accountable. The central characters in this section, I hope you saw, the central characters are the apostles and the elders who are dealing with disagreement over doctrine. This would be one of those those watershed moments in the history of the church. I want you to see that this is a significant incident in the first century church that should and will affect the church throughout all the ages. Where what you believed was critical to the honor of Christ and his church. There was a bottom line that will not be compromised. You're already seeing, here's something that the elders had to agree on. What's the bottom line here? And we'll unfold this passage and see another view of how the church of Christ is to operate. But I want to tell you right up front where I'm going with this. I'm approaching this incident. I'm looking at it through the lens of the office of the elder. You know, there are many things that elders are called to do, but there is no higher calling for an elder than to shepherd the flock of Christ. And that involves two things. Hear me now, an elder has two primary responsibilities. The first is to guard the teaching of the church or right doctrine. And the second is to guard the life of the church or holy living. Why? Because 
in the Christian church, right doctrine will always lead to right living to which elders are held accountable. You know, in a week, as I've mentioned, in a week from now, next Saturday, we're going to be affirming, electing officers to, be, to lead us here at Third Reformed Church. That's a very serious thing, friends, by the way. If you haven't felt that, you're going to affirm men to lead you in this church, to represent you in this church. We saw earlier a few weeks back the call of deacons and how they were to primarily care for the needs of God's people. The elder, on the other hand, the elder, on the other hand, was to maintain the purity and peace of the church primarily by making sure right doctrine was leading to right living for the honor of Christ. But, oh, (laughs) distractions of secondary issues in the church often hinder the effectiveness of both offices of deacon and elder. But that's a sermon for another time. Amen? (laughs) We often have so many other things that just get in the way. So now let's look at how these leaders dealt with a difference in doctrine. Not in the abstract, but in the reality of life. I hope you saw that the opening scene was dealing with men who were from a Jewish heritage and might even have been Christians, but they were teaching something different. A new doctrine is clear. Look at verse, uh, that first verse in chapter 15 again. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, before we go any further, let me suggest three ways to understand Christian doctrine that that I think we're going to see modeled in this passage for us. Just briefly, three things. First, true Christian doctrine will always be based on the Bible, not on your opinion, not on what other people think, but true Christian doctrine, first and foremost, is based on the Bible. Second, it will always point to Christ. True Christian doctrine of the Bible ends up pointing you to Jesus. And finally, it will always lead to godly living. If it's true doctrine and you believe it, it's going to affect your life. Now, it's interesting. We don't know what, it's an interesting phrase that that Luke records here about this. There was dissension and debate. We don't know what this dissension and debate with the leaders and Paul and Barnabas looked like, but we can assume it was intense. Something set off a spark. These guys said, all right, yeah, these Gentiles, yeah, they're converted, but they're not going to be saved unless they're circumcised and they obey the law of Moses. One thing they did agree on, which is what I just mentioned, they were arguing on the basis of the scriptures, namely the teaching of Moses. It wasn't philosophy or logic that would rule the day, but it was the word of God. So they were appealing to the same thing. And although they agreed on the doctrine of scripture, look at the central issue. What is it that divided them immediately? I would argue the doctrine of salvation. (laughs) Right up front, what caused these guys to suddenly have a debate of intensity? How is somebody truly saved? How is somebody really made right with God? 
Now, I want you to remember these, these Jewish converts were coming out of a heritage of being God's chosen people. And they sought to be obedient to everything that God had commanded them. And especially through the one who received the law, Moses, we must obey what Moses, because Moses was closest to God. So it's, you know, it is, it's hard to let go of some good habits from the past, even if they're, uh, even if they're for better ones, it's still hard to let go. Keep in mind, friends, Gentiles, Gentiles. When I mention that to you, it might not mean a whole lot. But if you were a Jew and I said Gentiles, (laughs) it would conjure up some ugly stuff. Gentiles were always considered second class, unworthy of God's favor. And now they were being included in the kingdom of God. Surely they had to do something to seal or merit this new adoption. Hey, Gentiles, you really want to be a part of us? Here's what you have to do. You know, it's worth a pause to ask here for us, too, that we might have similar attitudes towards someone or some people group around us. You don't, you don't hate them, and you, you might even welcome them into the church, but sometimes you can have, without even realizing it, you can have a condescending pity rather than a true welcoming love for someone who is outside. You can be token. Oh, we're nice to have you here. You're not like us, but we'll treat you with pity. It's nice that you're here. Rather than saying you are as important as anyone in this room. Friends, we've got to challenge ourselves. That's a whole other sermon. But think about how our attitudes can be reflected. In the mind of Paul and Barnabas, this was a watershed issue. It went to the very heart of the gospel. That's why they debated so intensely. And it even brought others into the discussion. Yet, I think what we're seeing here is the beginning of Presbyterianism. I'm not going to wave that flag, but I want you to see what was happening here. This, this idea of representative men representing the churches coming together was started right here in chapter 15. Because they were appointed as representatives to go to Jerusalem to consult with other elders about this issue. No one or two elders should rule the church and make decisions concerning doctrine and life. That's a theme of the Bible. Even Proverbs says what? In the council of many, there is wisdom. Don't let one person or a couple people rule. There is wisdom in working together. The next scene in verse 3 show, and, and is there in verse 3, and it shows leaders, these leaders on their journey going through Phoenicia and Samaria. What were they doing? What they did was not only to declare the doctrine of new life in Christ, but they were living it out right in front of them. They, they loved to talk to whoever would listen about what the Lord had done in saving people through his son. Oh, friends, elders, these elders... Elders were men of character who were not only grounded in the knowledge of God and Christ, but they reflected the very character of Jesus in their conduct. They weren't just preaching doctrine. They were living Jesus in front of these people. I think a word of caution for for us as current elders who might be called to this office. Brothers, this is for you. The doctrines of our faith, they have to be seen in our lives. 
Men who are grounded in the word of God, focused on Christ and living a life to his glory. What a weight an elder has to feel if anybody has to practice what they preach. It has to be an elder. The next scene is Paul and Barnabas arriving in Jerusalem with the other elders. This is, the, this is the first, again, this is the first recorded gathering of the leaders of the Christian church to decide on an issue that would affect the whole church. We see in verses 4 to 7 how the situation was approached and, and dealt with among the elders. Notice, Paul and Barnabas and others arrived. They didn't first lay down guidelines for debate. Let's figure out how we're going to argue and who's going to win. They first were reminded of what they had in common. Did you see that? Paul and Barnabas came together, and what did they do? They started sharing what God had been doing and how people were coming to faith in Jesus. Lives were being changed, and God was being glorified. That's the first thing they started talking about. Hey, we're not here to argue, doctor. Can I just tell you what I just saw? Even Gentiles are hearing the word and the good news, and their lives are being changed by God's spirit. Brothers, this is exciting what God is doing. But then the heat gets turned up, doesn't it? (laughs) Thanks, Paul, but we want to tell you something. As Pharisees, we are challenging our elders on the issue of salvation. And they say this, quote, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Again, you have to understand that Jerusalem church was filled with Jewish believers in the Messiah who naturally wanted to keep some of their traditions that had become such a part of their identity as God's chosen ones. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with wanting to keep what has been such a part of our lives and how do you live with God? We want, we want these Gentiles to appreciate our heritage. So in order for them to really be responsive Christians, they have to be circumcised. They have to share our heritage. They have to obey what Moses says. Once again, we see in verses 6 and 7, isn't it interesting? There was much debate. (laughs) Wouldn't you like to be a fly on the wall? (laughs) What was going on at that point? How did these men talk with and to each other? Did they they yell at each other? (laughs) Did they accuse each other of things? Were other issues brought up that had nothing to do with the issue at hand? Just because somebody was mad? Wouldn't you? Like Presbytery, right? <laughs> what, did they go, what were they like? One author says that when it comes to the defense of the true Christian doctrine, he said this, we should be courageous but never stubborn or rash. And he goes on to say that leaders in the church should be men who are, quote, well exercised in the word of God, and decide controversies not after their own pleasure, but according to the authority of God. Oh, friends, there's so many tangents here. Just think about this. Here's a passing thought. As Christians, not only should our lives be different, but the way we disagree should be different as well. Sadly, sadly, it is too often the case that we look more like the selfish-driven world than the kingdom of God. Friends, the best way to destroy a debate or a relationship 
is to attack their motives and ignore the issues. You're a jerk. You are insensitive. You don't care about anybody at all but yourself. I'd rather deal with that than have a person deal, make me deal with truth. <laughs> you know, the best thing you can do in those situations, remove pride. <laughs> Get rid of pride. You take away pride from the argument, and all you have is humility. Humility doesn't shut it down, but it controls it. What does it look like for humble people of God to disagree and to seek the Lord together? I think the final scene you see is now focused on Peter. Peter, who is speaking on behalf of the other apostles and the elders. And you see that in conclusion in verses 7 through 11. We see that there are some things worth going to the wall for. In the church, purity of doctrine, and especially things dealing with the person and work of Jesus, that takes priority. Oh, hear me now. If there is a bottom line in the Christian faith, if there is a bottom line, it will always center around Jesus and what he did on the cross. If there's an uncompromising bottom line, it's Jesus and his death on that cross. Peter stands up not to express his opinion, but to first remind others what God had declared and done. Peter was called by God to invite Gentiles into the kingdom of God. They knew that and they saw it confirmed by the Lord giving them his Holy Spirit. And Peter even says to these, these fellow uh, people who he was arguing with, brothers, God made no distinction between them and us. But now he gets personal. This is not a casual misunderstanding. It's rather a spiritual life and death issue. It's not about how to get along with people you don't agree with, but how are any of us saved and made right with God. Look again with me at verses 10 and 11. This is the pivotal point of this whole passage. Now, therefore, Peter says, you're putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, that's doctrine, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. These elders were not trashing the bad guys. They were rather affirming the good guy, Jesus, who was the only hope for anyone who truly wanted to be right with their maker. Yet there are many secondary issues yet we deal with in the church of Christ today. And, and sadly, friends, we divide over many of those, but there is one doctrine that is the very heart of the gospel that any Bible-believing Christian cannot compromise on. And it's also found in Paul's letter in Ephesians. Listen to what he says. It sounds very similar. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Well, not only Bible-believing Christians, but especially elders overseeing the flock. Why is that important? Because in the Christian church, right doctrine will always lead to right living. 
for which elders are held accountable. At this point, you might be concluding. I hope these elders are listening. <laughs> I hope these guys get it. And I would add, amen. Amen. I hope elders feel it heavy on them. But let me suggest to you what often hinders or gets in the way of elders doing what they should be doing. Part of it is a problem that, that too often we see elders and even expect them to be primarily managers of ministry rather than shepherds of our souls. Don't miss the difference because it could be a dangerous shift in priorities. Management and oversight is necessary to, be, to avoid being poor stewards of God's resources. But is that the primary calling of elders? I invite you, come to a session meeting sometime and witness Witness how much time we spend dealing with organizational concerns and issues that members rightfully bring to our attention. Compare that, compare that to the time we spend reporting and talking about your spiritual lives, how we can pray and encourage you. We, and I believe the brothers here, your elders, have been making great strides in trying to be true shepherds for your souls but we need your prayers and your support as well. And one thing I can tell you, every session meeting, we pray personally for at least three of these families. We are going through the directory, saying we're not doing anything else until we pray. We pray. What's going on with that family? How can we pray for them? Not just sustain them, but that God would be God to them. Friends, that's what, the, that's what we want to do. We want to build up your souls in Christ. We don't want to just make this a convenient, wonderfully red-run organization that we can all brag about. We want to be elders who love your souls and are seeking you have hope in the gospel and belief in Jesus that affects your life. A second problem or hindrance for us as elders, and I say this in love and I struggle with how to say it, so please hear me. One of the problems in many of our churches is the ignorance of our people. Oh, please don't throw anything. Listen to what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying you are ignorant people <laughs> in terms of your character, but, but more in terms of our knowledge of God's word and its place in our lives. Friends, as elders, it's, it's increasingly hard to oversee the doctrine and life of the church when we are not striving to grow in the knowledge of God. It's hard for us sometimes to try to, to help you understand doctrine when you don't really know the scriptures as well as you need to. Here's a thought. The higher the level of biblical ignorance, the greater the percentage for disagreement, misunderstanding, and even division. So what can you and I do to support the work of the church in particular and these elders and shepherds of our souls? If you are a member of this church, I would suggest... You are obligated, I think I can say this with confidence, you are obligated to go back often and read the vows you took before God and these witnesses. To put it crassly, are you holding up your end of the bargain? <laughs> are you doing what you stood here before God and said that you would do as a member of this church? You don't have to be a card-carrying Presbyterian, but you do have to be someone who holds fast to the doctrine of the person and work of Jesus and his call on your life. And in closing, I would finally say, pray for your elders. 
I'm going to embarrass them. I'm just going to ask them to stand up for a second. We only have four or five elders, but elders, would you stand? There are four or five men in this room, and Dave, I'm including you in this too, and Frank. These are men who have been called out by God, who've been set apart to be shepherds of the souls of God's people wherever they are. You can sit down, brothers. Brothers and sisters, members of this church, you and I are responsible to pray for these men. It's hard. It is hard, not only in their own lives to walk with Christ, but to be an influence and oversee God's people. These are broken men like you and me who need Jesus every day and are called to make sure this church is a place where what is being taught is true to God's word and it's being lived out in the world. Why all this concern? Because of the uncompromising call of the gospel that Peter stated so clearly. But we believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, what is your doctrine? What is your life? Pray for your elders that they would remind us of what the bottom line of life is and what the call of life is. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do cry out to you for our elders. Lord, these dear men who have been called out by you and your church to be representatives to us, to make sure what we are hearing is right, but yet to also push us in love to live what is right. Oh, God, bless these dear men as they seek to be leaders uh, who are walking with Jesus. And then, Lord God, help us as a church to see here, even in this first century church, the call to right doctrine and right living must be a beautiful marriage in our lives. So, Lord, bless Third Reform as we continue to start this new year that we would hunger and thirst to know Christ and to make him known. And we ask in his precious and holy name, amen.